I listened rather I last during the, the week just gone I listened to last week's sermon by Andy Wood that was here uh, because I wanted to be in the kind of flow of what was being said and uh, I understand you had a long run in Romans and then had a break after chapter 11 and then picked up the practical uh, section of Romans which is 12 through to 16 and uh, this is the, the passage that's been assigned to me. Now, Andrew was speaking about sacrifice and uh, all the, some of the issues that were around that, which flow out of chapter 12, because the opening verses really set the scene. And uh, I always remember Stuart Elliott in his little commentary on Romans, he sums it up beautifully in Romans 12 when he says, don't offer a sacrifice, be one. Living sacrifices, that was the, the theme. And also Andrew mentioned uh, dear William Tyndale. Um, if you ever come to my house, and uh, you'll find that my house is actually called, or our house, I shouldn't say, I shouldn't say my house, our house, is called, um, is called Tyndale. And it's named after William Tyndale. It's the first time in our lives we've ever actually named a property. But now that we've got a 15 bed mansion, uh, no, uh, now that we've got our little bungalow, uh, we call it Tyndale to remind me. So every time I walk to my front door, I can see Tyndale, uh, one of my favorite figures from church history. And I'm gonna come back to Tyndale before we finish this morning. Uh, also, Andrew mentioned about over 70 countries where there is significant persecution for Christians. That's an amazing uh, piece of information. And I know that many, many countries, it's hard. And the reason I mention that is you come to a passage like this and the opening verse says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God and those that, have, have, that, that exist have been instituted by God. Now that's a, a very interesting statement. And the early Christians were very quickly called enemies of the state. And in many ways, if you look into the history of it, there was an inevitability about the clash between Rome, the authorities of Rome, and the Christian church. It didn't happen all at once. It didn't happen in a widespread sense. The, the issues around the persecution of the Roman state is quite complicated. Uh, of course, it all came to an end when Constantine professed to be a Christian in uh, 312 uh, AD. And then things changed dramatically. But the pressure is on here in the UK, and we are becoming, and in some ways already are, the bad guys. In fact, there's been a, a book published by Stephen McAlpine, an Australian pastor, called Being the Bad Guys. And he's basically saying, how can we be the best bad guys we can be? In other words, live as Christians in a world that says we shouldn't live as Christians. That's the theme of the book. I recommend it to you, it's a very good book. And of course, this is, you know, this is the beginning of the, the second part of the practical um, working out of the gospel in the book of Romans. And Romans can be summed up in the great, in the great uh, words, you know, the universal nature of sin, justification by faith, being declared righteous in the court of God, which we know from Romans 3, 4, 5. Uh, and then six and seven and eight is sanctification, living out what it means to be justified. And then, of course, anticipating glorification when we shall finally be made like Christ. There's a big plan to it all. There's a shape and a direction to it all. 
But how does it work out? And that's, of course, what these chapters are about in many respects. There's lots of personal information where Paul's talking about his journeys and what he's doing and his relationship with the church at Rome and so on. But it is remarkable, isn't it, to think that after 30, well, 30 years or so after the resurrection, the gospel is right across the Mediterranean and has influenced the very heart of the empire, Rome itself, and you have a Christian church there to whom Paul has written. And the outworking of all this is partly to do with the moral force of a free justification. People can't always understand this. God forgives sins. We know that in the gospel. God freely forgives. God freely justifies. And some people see that as a motivation uh, to do what you like. Whereas the, the Bible constantly says this is a reason and a force to live for God and to live according to the way he wants us to live. And that, this is a lot of the outworking of that. And of course, it's very nuts and bolts because he, he's talking about life in the church. He's talking about life in society. He's talking about the spread of the gospel, all of these things. Of course, it's a chapter to set a conversation on fire. Well, the first seven verses are anyway, because uh, it's been discussed for, for centuries, hasn't it? How do we relate to the governing authorities? Now, 2,000 years on, moving from Rome, and we live in a modern Western democracy, there's a huge difference. And there are lots of implications, and we have loads of freedom in so many different ways. But that doesn't change anything about this passage. And in fact, just listening to the reading of it again this morning, something occurred to me that hadn't occurred to me just during the course of the week in preparing. And that was that you go to the Old Testament, what about Babylon and uh, Assyria and Persia? And God says to his prophets about how he is in control of these nations and he, he raises them up and he takes them down. Nebuchadnezzar, Sennacherib, all these great figures and so that's an incredible uh, historical illustration of the truth here that there are no governing authorities without God's say-so. And that's really important for us to understand. Are Christians ever free to engage in civil disobedience? That's the kind of question that this passage raises up. And uh, let me give you a little quote or two just to illustrate um, I, I'm using these two quotations as illustrations of the kind of discussion this can generate. Are Christians free to, uh, to engage in civil disobedience? Yes, but under what circumstances? The Christian is free to engage in civil disobedience when the state prohibits him or her from doing what the Bible commands or commands him or her to do what the Bible prohibits. As Charles Colson has said, and he was part of the Nixon government in the 70s in the USA, Charles Colson has said, rightly exercise civil disobedience is divine obedience. But when Christians engage in such activities, it must always be to demonstrate their submissiveness to God, not their defiance of the state. Now that's in the spirit of Romans 13. Because I remember years ago, um, a theologian making a very good point that 
by describing the function of the state, Paul has also given us the basis to have a correct critique of the state. Is the state living up to what God sets it to do? Well, there you go. This is why it's such a, it's a, it's a hot topic. Are Christians ever free to engage in armed revolution? Here's another quote. The difference between civil disobedience and armed revolution is that in the former, the legitimacy of the existing government is not in question, whereas in the latter it is. Armed revolution is justified, in my opinion, this is the writer, only if the state has become totally opposed to the purpose for which God ordained it, and if there is no other recourse available to prevent massive evil. Now, you might think, well, that's a bit philosophical and a bit of a big discussion, but it happened in this country in the 1640s. It's called the Civil War. So you see, it's, it's a huge, huge topic. And obviously, we're, we're not going to uh, satisfactorily dig into all of that. But imagine how Christians living in many countries, the 70-plus the countries that, that Andrew mentioned last week, how many Christians living in these countries might come at this passage facing very different situations. Now, one of the things I've been able to do in recent years is travel a little bit in Eastern Europe, including Ukraine. And when you go in these countries, the older generation who remember the, the oppression under the communist state, they, they have something about them, these older believers. They have a, a fragrance about them. They have a stability about them. They have a grasp of, of God's authority about them. But they lived under a state that was thoroughly oppressive and persecuting Christians. And I can think of one or two dear people that I know in Poland and Ukraine and Romania where these things happen. So, you know, when you're thinking about a passage like this, all these kind of influences will come into your mind. And uh, I think that's important. But what I want to do, we have to look at the whole chapter briefly. But that sets the scene a little bit, and uh, happy to discuss with you over a cup of tea whether you think I believed in arm, armed revolutions or not. Uh, generally speaking, no, I'm a little bit of a coward. Um, but it, it's, a big, it's a big subject. But verses 1 to 7 is the Christian, and it's to get back to the theme of Romans, the Christian living under the law of the land. It's a foundational passage. It has served Christians through centuries and through many different uh, structures and, and rule under which they have lived. And we get some great examples of it in the Old Testament, don't we, with Joseph and Daniel and so forth. But the things to remember are this, in verse 1. The ruling authorities are subject to God's appointment. Now, my, in my own understanding of this, I, I think that what's, what's really important is that the principle of government is God-ordained. And the particular governments are ordained providentially. That's beyond our control. Yes, we participate in our democratic societies, but God is in control. And it's important to remember that. He is in control. These are subject to his appointment. And uh, if you look at verse 2, the problem with resistance is, therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. And this is generally speaking. It's an easy way to think of this. Can you imagine 
And this has happened in, in some situations when government is removed, even a bad government, even a defective government, even a government that opposes the gospel, for example. If, if a government is removed, countries descend into chaos very quickly. Uh, and it really creates problems. Or if governments are even kind of suspended or affected. I come from Northern Ireland. And at the moment, things in Northern Ireland are very fragile. Because the government structure is not, because of all the discussions about the EU protocols and all the rest of it, the, it's very fragile. And it affects people. So God has given his government, even in a fallen world, so that we don't descend into chaos. And so that you can see that. And this is foundational. And how the government serves God, therefore, verse 3, sorry, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you, be, would you have no fear of the one in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on wrongdoers. On the wrongdoer. And you've got to remember that even in the New Testament period, the Romans knew how to kill people. The Romans knew how to fight a war. But Rome was famous for its law and its stability, which is why when the Roman Empire finally collapsed in the fifth century, the world did temporarily fall into a state of chaos. It alarmed people. So we need to remember that. And there, there, so the, the idea, the basic idea of law and order was there. And what Paul is talking about is how Christians live under the law of their land. And the principles apply, whether it's first century, second, third, fourth, all the way up to ourselves. To be good citizens. And, and conscience comes into this. Look at verse 5. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. You do the right thing, not because you're just going to get into trouble, but because it's the right thing to do. We have a conscience about this. And then it gets quite uh, particular, doesn't it? For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, that is, servants of God, attending to this very thing. Pay all, pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Pay your taxes. It's an honorable thing to do. Of course, you, you have to do it in our kind of setup. You don't, uh, you might lose your job if you don't deal with your taxes right, um, as a certain someone has today. The New who says the New Testament doesn't live in the real world? It even talks about paying your taxes. It doesn't come any more basic than that. But the, the whole thrust of the passage is that as a Christian, you seek to be a good citizen. Now that would involve all kinds of complexities at all kinds of different times. But we have to be alert to it. We have to be sensitive to it. Remember, 
The whole section begins, which was the passage that was looked at last week, is about being transformed. And transformed men and women and young people live as good citizens. And there are countless examples of the Christian church engaged in this. And the problem for us in our Western democracy is we have such freedom, if this isn't a contradiction, what I'm going to say, we have such freedom that we take liberties. And we can abuse it. Now, I mean, in one sense, you know, probably a passage like this, you know, you need to take these seven verses and have a, maybe an hour's Bible study and on a midweek on it to get, try and get into all of it. But are you a good citizen, not because you're forced by the law and the government, but because you, you love and serve him who said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. That's who we serve. That's what Jesus said when he was questioned about the tax. Whose image and subscription is this? And it had Caesar's picture on the coin. Well, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. And there are examples in the New Testament of the Apostle Paul, for example, using his rights as a citizen. He was given rights and he uses those rights uh, for the good of the church as it happens, not just for his own personal protection. If you look at um, Acts 16, for example, and there's examples of the law at work. And yes, we can discuss and we can debate and, and, and we could do that. You know, we could get, get our coffees out and we could sit around in a big circle and say, right now, let's thrash out the implications of these principles. And we could go on all day at that. And I'm sure that could be profitable uh, in many ways. But here's the thing. Don't let... When you're trying to assess these things, don't, don't lose the force of what Paul is saying. And again, as I say, we live in a, we live in a very privileged country. We, we, have, we have all sorts of freedoms that many countries just simply do not have and many Christians don't have. I mean, imagine if you're living in North Korea. It's a completely different world. And you read this passage. There probably is a group of North Korean Christians somewhere this morning in North Korea, somewhere, reading the passage, maybe. What if they're going through this passage like we are? How different. But don't rob it of its significance that we are to be good and godly citizens. And that, that works itself out in everything. And yes, even if we speak up against certain things, which we may have to do, we do it with grace. We do it with dignity. We do it as representatives of the king. Interesting, isn't it? We're just coming into a phase of a coronation that was mentioned this morning. Rogers obviously produced a, a tract on that, which is a great, great idea. And so we have the, and of course we have a, a particular type of setup with our government and our king and all the rest of it. Um, it's, it's, it's somewhat unique in many ways, but it reminds us that there is one king above all kings, the king of kings. And to him, 
is our first allegiance. But in that allegiance, we will be good citizens. So you've got in this first section of Romans 13, the Christian living under the law of the land. But then secondly, verses 8 to 10, you've got the Christian living under the law of love. This is not a, this is not a new section in that sense. This is, this is flowing on from what he said. Look at what he says in verse 8. Oh, no one anything except to love each other. This is where the scripture really bites. For the command, sorry, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. There is the supreme debt of love. Now that's staggering. I just happened to be reading this morning, just from my own personal Bible reading, John 17. And I was very struck, probably because I've been thinking about this, but I was very struck when Jesus in that prayer to his father talks about the love which the father had for him before the world was created. And I was thinking, before creation even began, love was there. The love of the father and the son and the spirit. It's breathtaking. It's beyond our comprehension. Don't, don't pretend that we can, we can grasp that. We can't. But love. And of course, this is interesting because this is what... I'm very challenged about this. There's so many parts of the New Testament which talk about our duty to love one another. And that's a massive subject. You see, you see the enormity of the subject. Who gave me this passage? And it's just enormous, isn't it? For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment, they're all summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus himself said that. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Love sums up the law. And here we've got the quality and the blessing of love. Paul knows what he's saying. He's writing on the inspiration of the Spirit, but he knows what he's saying. He knows what the priorities are. And you can live under any government, you can live under any circumstance if you live with the love of Christ in you and flowing from you. And there's nothing like true Christian love to transform a circumstance. Now, isn't that challenging? You might even say to me, that's hard. Well, it's impossible. It's the Holy Spirit. He can teach us the way of love. And love's quality and love's blessing, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Now, the whole issue of the, in relation of law and grace, it's a complex business. I, I appreciate that. A transformed mind... Romans 12, 1 and 2, should produce a loving heart. And this embraces the church and it embraces your neighbor. It embraces your neighbor in your street, but it embraces, embraces your neighbor in your church. 
And everywhere you turn in the New Testament, you find the call, the obligation, the key importance of love as the mark of the Christian. Francis Schaeffer's uh, great little book is a tiny little book called The Mark of the Christian. It's all about the characteristic of love. And when love is absent or when love is fractured or when love is not operating within a fellowship, it can be devastating. And so the Lord calls us to that. The revolutionary, to use that word again, the revolutionary aspect of Christian freedom is that it gives us the freedom to love even our enemies. That's the true revolution. And that was the revolution that changed society and has changed societies over the years. And Jesus said even himself, didn't he, that, you know, people will know you are my disciples if you have love one for another. You could spend all day thinking about that. But the passage progresses. There's a movement here. If we now come to verses 11 to 14, Christian living in the light of salvation's day. Just just listen to the words. Verse 11. Besides this, you know, so he said, love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake up from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand, so let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly in the daytime. And then he lists a whole range of society sins and ills and ups and downs and all the rest of it. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Now, we have to wake up. Well, Paul's writing to the Romans. Surely the Spirit says to us, wake up. Salvation is nearer now. Lay aside. There are things to be put aside. I mean, he specifies certain things, doesn't he? Orgies, drunkenness, immorality, sensuality, quarreling, jealousy. It, it's very interesting. You know, when you go through that list, it, it, it sort of hits you at first. Orgies, drunkenness, sexual immorality. You think, oh, well, that's... That's big, that's, that's heavy. And then he says, quarreling and jealousy. He puts them there on the, same, on the same basis. That's powerful. Make no provision for the flesh. Starve it to death, he says. We have a tendency to feed which things which actually make us worse. That's the sinful nature. We, we, we're fighting against that. And the older you are, I'm allowed to say this now, being gray-headed, the older you get, the more you realize there are things you should have woken up to in life far, far sooner. I wonder, I just wonder even thinking through a great passage like this, if anyone here could just think, it's about time I woke up from that, or it's about time I woke up from that. and shook myself. Now let me just share something a little bit personal. In just a few months, it will be 50 years since I became a Christian and came along to this very building. I was part of the original group that bought this building in 1974. And this was my home church. 
And uh, if time flies generally, it certainly does when you get older. I mean, Brenda and I are convinced that days have only got 12 hours now, not 24. Things are going a lot faster. But this is, you know, and if that, if that was true, when I, I will have read this passage 50 years ago, I, I remember devouring my Bible when I first became a Christian. And I hope you devour the Bible, that you read it regularly and take it in. But if that was true, if, that, if I was reading this passage in 1973, and Paul says, it's time for you to wake up. Salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. How true is that now, 50 years down the line? For me. So the greatest wake-up call this morning is for me. And anybody who's over 65. Especially. But it's not just for the over 60s, is it? It's for all of us. And there are seven, seven exhortations now, that's an old-fashioned word is exhortation. Do you know what it means? Come on! That's what exhortation means. It's not just saying, do this. You know, you can hear a great deal of exhortation is heard just down the road at the football ground during the course of a football match. But here are the exhortations. Wake up from sleep. Are you spiritually sleepy this morning? I hope you're not physically sleepy. If you, if you are... My apologies if I've bored you to sleep. Cast off the works of darkness. Well, there they are. They're specified. Some of them. Obviously, they're all over Scripture. Put on the armor of light. Start living like a Christian in the light of his word. Keep living like a Christian. Walk properly in the daylight. The Bible uses this image of daylight and darkness. The darkness, uh, evil and daylight, good and righteousness and ungodliness. It's all used in that sense. And we all get that. We get that, especially in winter. Don't walk in the six destructive things of verse 13. Let us walk properly, not in orgies. We, we could even stretch that to overindulgence in any area. Drunkenness, immorality, sensuality, quarreling, jealousy. Don't walk in these things. They are destructive Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Study him. Try and live like him. That's the great challenge. Make no provision for the flesh. For the heart. You know, the sinful heart. And I'd like to put it to you like this. Living like Romans 13 in society would have a powerful influence on society. I really believe that. Ask yourself this question. Is the evangelical church in the UK weak or strong? In many ways, we're weak. Now, I'm not saying this is sort of putting myself above this. I'm talking about me here. We're weak. I think we are weak in, in the UK. There are many good indications of God's blessing, but we're weak. And we have to ask ourselves, why are we weak? Is it because we're neglecting this kind of thing? When should we wake up? Right now. We haven't to worry over much what may be coming. And I think there are, well, it's already well on the way, lots of things where things that we even say are very unpopular. 
and perhaps may go further than that. And that's where we can thank God for things like the Christian Institute that Andrew's involved with, because they do a lot of valuable work on our behalf. It's critical. How should we dress? Well, we should put on the Lord Jesus Christ as we walk as Christian citizens. You see how it all fits together. And we're to walk in the light of truth and righteousness and the gospel and the coming day of salvation. The Bible has something like, well, the New Testament has something like 300 references to the return of Jesus Christ to this earth. That day is coming. And in terms of God's timetable, it's coming incredibly quickly. It's coming soon. And this is how we're to live. Now, I want to give you just two final illustrations. Sorry if we've gone on a little bit on time here, but you'll just have to drink your tea a bit faster. But the... the um, just two things I want to finish with that kind of illustrate this because I said I'd come back to Tyndale. I own uh, a copy of Tyndale's New Testament. Now, this is the 1534 edition in modern English spelling. And it's, it's incredible. You would not believe that this was translated in 1534. I'm telling you, it's an incredible thing. And um, William Tyndale... Um, in, in the British Library, which is very near King's Cross Station, you go into the treasures room and you, there's, a, there's a glass case. Now you go from the ridiculous to the sublime. What do I mean by the ridiculous? Well, I'm gonna get, I'll probably get punched in the nose for this one. But you, there's, a, there's a scrap of paper where the Beatles wrote some of their early songs. It's, it's like little children's writing on a piece of, just a piece of A4. And it's in this glass case. And it's a treasure. Now, no disrespect to anybody who's a Beatles fan. But you then go across and there's all sorts of documents and you come across to the 1526 edition, which was the first Greek, uh, the first English New Testament translated directly from the Greek. And it's there in that glass case. And you, you can't touch it because it's all locked away, but you look at it and you think, and you can buy a little kind of a copy of it, you know, a little uh, sort of facsimile edition. The significance was that Tyndale did that in 1526. He, he got this revision in 1534. If you don't know, I'm sure many of you will know, but he was, he was strangled and burned at the stake in Belgium. And as he died, he prayed, O Lord, open thou the King of England's eyes. That was, the, was Henry VIII. And if you just read the life, I haven't read the details that my wife has read of Henry VIII's life and his, his, his antics. But you talk about, let every person be subject to the authorities. His dying prayer, and he's dying fundamentally under the instructions of Henry, ultimately. And he prays for him. And he said, Lord, open thou the King of England's eyes. And thus he dies. His crime? To give us the New Testament in living English. A treasure that has influenced our country beyond calculation. That's how you live as a citizen. You serve God 
You do what you have to do. And if the king puts you to death, you pray for him as you're dying. It's incredible, isn't it? I'll go to another T now, and this is my final statement. Tertullian, round about the early third century, one of the early church fathers. Tertullian was a zealous Christian, wrote many books in defense of the Christian faith, practical aspects of the Christian life, loads of stuff. You can, you can get it free online if you've got time. He was also a master of Roman law. And you know what he said? At the time when the emperor was becoming almost, an, 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 in many respects, a god, Tertullian wrote, we will not pray to the emperor, but we will pray for him. See the difference? There is one God, there is one ultimate king. He has set the laws. The world is under his authority, his control, his governance. The Christian lives under the law of the land. The Christian lives under the law of love. The Christian lives in the light of salvation's day. This is the word of God. Let's listen to it. Let's pray.